So Money episode 480, Aaron Task, digital editor at fortune.com. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. My guest today is a friend, a former colleague from thestreet.com and Yahoo Finance, and now the digital editor at Fortune, where he oversees editorial strategy and operations. Aaron Task is here. He's also a fellow podcaster. If you haven't subscribed to his show, hit pause, go on iTunes and subscribe, and then come back and listen to this interview. I just want you to get that done and out of the way as soon as possible because it will enhance your life. The show is called Fortune Unfiltered. It's a new weekly podcast where Aaron has in-depth conversations with some of the top business people all over the world. More about Aaron. He is an award-winning journalist with over 20 years of experience covering business and finance. He previously served as the editor-in-chief of Yahoo Finance and was an on-camera host there of The Daily Ticker. Before joining Yahoo, he was at thestreet.com for a decade. Aaron is also an author. He co-wrote Bailout Nation with Barry Ritholtz. He's also a dad of four. And his wife, Allison Task, an entrepreneur, was on this show uh, back in the spring. That episode number, wait for it, episode 352. So go back in the archives and check out Allison. She's a life coach. And before coaching, she had another life in the culinary world. That's how we met because uh, we ended up working together uh, doing videos and um, all sorts of fun things at Yahoo. She has authored cookbooks and hosted TV shows, web shows. She's amazing. But back to Aaron, you know, he and I go down memory lane a lot on this show because we have history. The two of us started way back when at thestreet.com. He actually was one of the people who brought me on board there. What were the lessons we both learned about harnessing the power of multimedia at thestreet.com back in the mid 2000s? You know, back when before podcasts were cool, we were doing podcasts. And that was all thanks to the leadership of Jim Cramer and our team at the street where we were encouraged to try things outside the box. Aaron has managed to be very entrepreneurial within the media companies he's worked for, which I've always respected. How has he done it, though, in such a way where his bosses don't get threatened by his awesomeness? You know, that's a fine line. How do you develop your personal brand within a corporate brand? And his biggest money mistake and success, both having to do with sort of the same thing. Listen, and you'll know what I mean. Here's Aaron Task. Aaron Task, my friend, one of my longest and dearest colleagues. Welcome to So Money. Thank you, Farnoosh. It's great to be here. Can you believe it? Do you remember the day that we met? I do. The first time we met. I don't, I, I don't remember the day that we met, but I remember meeting you at the street.com in the, you know, I, wanna, I don't want to age either one of us a long time ago. <laughs> and, you know, knew right away that you were talented. We had a lot of fun together. And, and I, I have great memories of our time together in the Florida New York Stock Exchange mm-hmm. doing big board breakdown every day. It was a lot of fun. It was. Thank God for the street because there I not only got to meet great 
uh, people like you and so many of our colleagues have gone on to do such great things. Uh, but there was an opportunity at the time, which is why I got hired, was to create digital media for the street.com videos, podcasts. And this was, I will date us, it was 2006. So this was a little bit before the trend. You know, we were kind of on the edge of all of this and YouTube had just gone public. So we were, I thought, very much ahead of our times. People were actually telling me that it would never work out. I come from television. My boss, my former boss had said, we'll see you back here in six months. Good really? luck, good wow, luck making internet project. videos. Uh, but that place really allowed us, I think, to be entrepreneurial and, and, tr- and make mistakes and try new things. And it's no coincidence that now today, you and I are both, you know, still podcasting and we know a lot about it because we did it back when, before it was cool. Yeah, that, that's very true. And and I would say that about the street.com overall it was a meritocracy. And it was the kind of place where at a young age, you could do things that other places would make you wait to do just because you weren't senior enough. And it was really all about your willingness uh, to try something in your abilities. You had to have the ability too, but that's a credit to Jim Cramer. That was the kind of culture yes. that that place had. And now fast forward, you are now at Fortune as the uh, head of digital at Fortune. You've been there about a year. How's it going? You know, I feel like the first month you just kind of learn where the bathrooms are and you learn names. (laughs) And now you've arrived and you've made quite a nice home for yourself there. Tell us about kind of what your goals were going into what is, um, you know, for all intents and purposes, you know, Fortune, it's an established place. Uh the magazine is probably the bread and butter and I worked at money. So I know it, there, it can be hard to get things to move, uh, you know, new ideas to get impl- implemented sometimes. I don't know what you're talking about. That's so, uh, I, don't, I don't understand Speaking what you mean Speaking in Chinese. Um, but tell us how you made things happen there and what you're doing now. I know you have so much going on. You're very entrepreneurial everywhere you go. Thank you. Uh, well, so yes, it was, it's been about a year. I was hired as digital editor of fortune with the mandate to increase traffic to the site. And the the quirky thing about Fortune is that Fortune.com has only been a standalone website for a little over two years. Before that, it was part of CNN Money. Oh, right. Because, so when Time Warner and Timing split, essentially Fortune and Money got sort of cast off, like you guys are on your own. So I came to a place that was had, you know, a you know, a a brand that had been around since the 1920s, you know, great culture of journalism, but really very limited digital know-how and experience. And so I brought what I had learned at thestreet.com and Yahoo Finance and MSN before then um, to Fortune with really a focus on, we have to make it a destination, a must read every day. What are the stories that people are talking about in our world, in the world of money and finance, Every day, what are the stories they're talking about? What's our angle on them? And let's tackle it and let's get at it. Because frankly, when I got here, even the digital side of Fortune was operating like a magazine. People would kind of come in, have a cup of coffee, think about what they wanted to do that day, then start writing at about 11 o'clock go and then go out. to lunch. Yeah. And yeah, maybe they'd sneak in a workout. And I just had to, I had to put a stop to that and just basically bring in a more focused attitude on getting started earlier. I, I've got editors in place now in London and in Hong Kong. We had people in San Francisco. So effectively, we're now a 24-7, maybe not seven, but we're almost a 24-7 news operation, which we weren't certainly when I started here. 24 so that was, that was Yeah, that was mandate number one, right? And we, and we did increase traffic. Great. I'm proud to say an average of 35% in my 
first six months on the job versus the prior year. So rule number one, just get working, people. Get going. Yeah. Get going. I had had to light a fire under people. Eat lunch at your desk, man. Yeah. And and I understand, again, you know, it was a very odd situation to have a place that had been part of CNN Money, which is a huge website in itself. They never had to worry about traffic. They they had a fire hose with CNN Money. So the idea that you have to fight for traffic every day, I had to teach them that. And, And I have to give credit to the staff. They took to it quickly. They adjusted to it and they delivered on the traffic goals that we set out for ourselves. Because you're the future. You're the current and you're the future. I'm sorry. Everybody reads online. And, you know, we all, it's not a secret. Magazine subscriptions are down. What have you found to be the, the, the best formula for getting the news that your team firstly wants to put out because you think it's important uh, news about uh, business and entrepreneurship, but also what people want to read? Like there's this push pull, right? Because seems like at least when I was at Yahoo, any story that had to do with Kim Kardashian, sports, like that's where the eyeballs were. So we would fight. That was the content we were fighting up against to get my nice little small business story or my personal finance story to get on the front page. So how are you finding that balance? Here, we're not just competing with the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg. We're competing with cat videos, right. Kim Kardashian and Justin Bieber. So re- really, like, what what is compelling about this story that's going to make someone click on it when they have 300 other things, you know, readily to click on at their disposal? So that's a we had to focus on the headlines, and we spent a lot of time doing workshops on our headlines to make them better, sharper, and clickier. Now, we, we don't do clickbait here. I'm, I'm very opposed to that. But you want to make a headline that someone's going to say, oh, I want to see what that is. Right? To me, clickbait is a, a teaser headline where the story doesn't pay off. But we, you can tease, you can, you know, the, we call it the curiosity gap. You put the curiosity gap in the headline to get them to click. And then you deliver you know, a, a great product in terms of compelling article analysis video so that they don't feel like they got suckered into something. They feel like, oh, wow, that I, you know, that was enticing and it, it, it paid off for me. I like that curiosity gap. Uh, I'm yeah. not a fan of clickbait either, though. That's sometimes what you're up against. It's tough. And we, yeah, and we, we are up against it. And again, what, what I when I came here, I thought the opportunity was, OK, you have a place that knows how to do quality journalism, needs to learn how to compete every day on the web. I would rather be in a place like that than a place where they know how to do clickbait and they have a great CMS, but they don't know how to do journalism. Right. That's, that culturally would not be a great fit for me. And then, you know, Peter Thiel sues you and you're, you're gone. <laughs> and then you're gone. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, you've done a really exceptional job too, everywhere you go of developing your own personal brand, continuing to develop your personal brand, which I think that sometimes in the news biz, journalists don't know how to do. And sometimes their bosses, their, their magazines or newspapers discourage it. Uh, because they don't want you to become the star. They want the magazine to be the star. So how do you uh, reconcile that? If that is, if, that, if you've ever run up against that, where you felt like maybe this isn't the best, maybe I'm not supported here. Um, I know I felt that yeah. way sometimes in some jobs. I, I've, I have felt that way, but I, I learned a lesson a long time ago, and I, I wish I could remember who told me this. But one of my old editors said, as a journalist, you're the CEO of your byline, right? So wherever your name is, that's your business. So whether it's an article, a video, a podcast, you're on stage in an event, you're doing someone else's podcast, whatever, you're on TV as a guest somewhere, ultimately, 
the people who are watching or listening or reading, they're not thinking, oh, this is, this is about fortune. They're looking at you. And so I learned, again, a long time ago to take responsibility for that and to make sure that whenever I did something, I, I always try to do it with quality and integrity. And I know that sounds like a cliche, but I know that every time I put something out with my name on it, there's a risk that someone's going to see it and say, oh, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about or it's not worth my time. And they're not going to look at you the next time around. Right. So you have to be, you have to be prepared and you have to do the work and, and put out a quality product. Now You're, I'm not saying I've done it every single time with the, as much success as I'd like, but that's the, the mentality that I've gone at it with. You're only as good as your last tweet. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, I, there, there's an expression, you know, it takes years to build a reputation and when it can be destroyed in one day. And mm-hmm. that is that is very true, especially for journalists, because what you do is public, right? And and you have to know that, that everything you do is going to be scrutinized, especially today where there's so much scrutiny of the press in general. Um, I think some of it is overdone, but that's a whole other discussion. But again, you know, it's my name that goes on the product. Yep. Kudos so I'm to the founder. You. I'm the founder of my I'm the founder of my byline. <laughs> right. Kudos to you also for getting your podcast on the airwaves. I know that at some magazines, there's resistance to that for whatever reason. I mean, it, there's not a lot of, uh, there are a lot of barriers to starting a podcast and what's the worst that's going to happen. Um, but you've done it well. Obviously you have a history with doing podcasts. You've hosted tons of content before. Um, how has it worked out for traffic? How's it worked out for just the visibility and, um, you know, uh, appreciation of the fortune brand and of you? Right. So let, let me uh, let me go back a little bit to, to the origins of it because it's interesting. So first of all, so before I came to Fortune, I was at Yahoo Finance for over seven years, where I was an on-camera host for Fortune Video, and I I was editor in chief of Yahoo Finance, managing a small staff there. And the whole time I was there, I was saying we should do podcasts, we should do podcasts. And the view at Yahoo was that podcasts weren't big enough to move the needle at Yahoo, where they 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 work in scale, and if it doesn't have yeah you know hundreds of millions of of viewers or listeners, it's just not, they don't think it's worth their time. So I was, you know, for years, I was trying to get the bit to do a podcast. And I come to Fortune and said the same thing, hey, I'd love to do a podcast, but I was told, look, that's great, but, you know, we need you to get the site in shape and get the staff focused on the things that we talked about before on just getting traffic every day and competing every day, you know, in the web, which is, it, it never ends, right? So that's, so it, 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 I was working on that. In the meantime, independently of me, there were, there were, Forces at work in the building saying like, hey, let's do some podcasts. Sports Illustrated has almost a dozen podcasts up and running. Damn that um, Sports and, Illustrated. Well, what the good news is that they, they, they showed other brands in the building like, hey, this is a, this is a viable market and you mm-hmm. can you know, generate some revenue from this and this is something you should experiment with. So there were, there were discussions going on at Fortune about doing some podcasts. And I was invited to those meetings in my role as the digital editor of Fortune because this is a digital product and what do I want the, the podcast to be. But there was another person here who was earmarked to be the host. And I was like, sure, it makes sense. She's very smart. She's very talented. Uh, her name is Lee Gallagher. She's a senior editor here at Fortune. She's, she does She hosts a lot of video for Fortune. And it became obvious to me that she was a little hesitant about doing this podcast for reasons that I couldn't put my finger on. And then it came out that she was about to go on a book leave 
this summer. She's working on a book right now about Airbnb. It's her second book. But it just so happened that the timing of that book leave was coinciding for when they kept talking about launching this podcast. And at one point, I I said to our head of marketing who was dealing with the sales team and all the efforts leading up the podcast, I said, look, I'd love to do this podcast if, if Lee doesn't want to do it or can't do it. And then she independently said, you know what? I just can't take this on right now. And then they, so this is, you know, the Lou Gehrig story, you know, Lou Gehrig, you know, was on the bench and then the guy playing first base before him, who nobody remembers, you know, was injured and then he stepped in and then he had a consecutive game streak in baseball and, you know, was a hall of famer. Right. So I'm not saying the Lou Gehrig podcast, but I'm saying, you know, that was an opportunity. I was there. They said, do you want to do this? And I said, absolutely. Cause I'd been thinking about it already that if my name was called, I had to be ready. Um, so we launched it in July, spent, I spent the better part of June trying to build a library so that we could launch with more than one podcast, first of all, and have a, a choice of podcasts to choose from. By the way, it's called Fortune Unfiltered, available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> and what I'm doing is I'm interviewing successful executives and leaders about leadership and their personal story, how they got to the place they are today, what drives them, what motivates them. And it's been it's been fantastic for me just to spend, you know, we're doing 30 to 50 minute interviews with these very successful people. So I'm really able to get in depth with them um, and learning about what makes them tick, what drives them. Again, most of these people are in a place where they don't have to work, but what is compelling them to continue to go to work every day or try something new. Um, I interviewed Steve Case. Yeah, what Steve who, Case? What what keeps him going? Because he really doesn't have to work. He, he does not have to. He work, does not even right? have to be on your podcast, and he yet he, no, he joined no. you. right. Steve Case was the the co-founder of AOL and the CEO of AOL. And you know, for people who don't remember or or maybe only think of AOL as oh, they did that deal with Time Warner and it was a disaster. AOL was the best performing stock of the 1990s. The whole boom, they were the best performing stock, and he he rode that huge internet wave. You know, the free discs, the free CDs, and we joke about it now, but it was an immense business. I think at one point he said they had 80% of the American audience that was online was online through AOL. I mean, huge market share. It's the Facebook of company. the 90s. Yeah, they were the Facebook of the 90s. That is a great way to put it. Yeah, they really were. And so they acquired Time Warner. He stepped down as part of that deal. And again, doesn't have to work another day of his life. His grandkids don't have to work another day in their lives either if he sets it up that way. But he's an entrepreneurial guy. He'd started several businesses before AOL and just, I don't think, has the makeup to sit around, you know, play golf and go to the beach. And now he's doing a number of different things, including uh, he has something called the Rise of the Rest, which is a tour. He goes around the country to mostly not rural America, but not coastal America, like what some people call real America, looking for startups that need funding because so much of the venture capital money, excuse me, venture capital money is going to Silicon Valley, obviously, but Boston, Austin, New York City, Seattle, you get out of those areas and there just isn't any funding for some great ideas. So he's he's going around the country looking for great startups. So if you're an entrepreneur listening to this podcast 
and you look up Rise of the Rest tour, and if Steve Case is coming to your town, go meet with him hmm. because he's got money to invest wow. in in startup businesses. Yeah, it's, Are it's a great. Cameras following him because that sounds like a nice little you know mini series. Or I think so too. It's a, it's a great idea, and maybe you should pursue it with him. I don't I don't recall if. if um, cameras are falling, but he he's very much, you know, pro Americana. And I, I actually asked him that, did, would he ever consider running for office? And he said, no. And, and afterwards I kept thinking about him, like Steve Case, I want to, I want to get on his, his bandwagon, yeah. Steve Case 2020, um, just because he's, you know, when he talks about leadership and job creation in America and how important, important innovation and entrepreneurship is to America. It was really inspiring stuff. That's really interesting. I'll have to look that up. Need a website? Why not do it yourself with Wix.com? No matter what business you're in, Wix.com has something for you. Used by more than 84 million people worldwide, Wix.com makes it easy to get your website live today. You need to get the word out about your business. It all starts with a stunning website with hundreds of designer-made, customizable templates to choose from. The drag-and-drop editor. There's no coding needed. You don't need to be a programmer or designer to create something beautiful. You can do it yourself with Wix.com. Wix.com empowers business owners to create their own professional websites every day. When you're running your own business, you're bound to be busy. Too busy. Too busy worrying about your budget. Too busy scheduling appointments. Too busy busy to build a website for your business. And because you're too busy, it has to be easy. And that's where Wix.com comes in. With Wix.com, it's easy and free. Go to Wix.com to create your website today. The result is stunning. You also interviewed Gary Vaynerchuk, whom we, you know, I, I tried to remind Gary of this. I don't think he remembered, but I, we worked with him at thestreet.com. He was one of our contributors. That's right. Yeah. Um, of course, he doesn't remember me, but I interviewed him for Follow the Leader. You interviewed him on Unforced and Unfiltered. Did you learn anything about him that surprised you? Because I feel like at this point, if you follow Gary online and you sort of, you know, he, it's it's a lot of the same. He's very yeah. consistent in his messaging. Um, but was there anything that you learned that blew you away or surprised you or you didn't know before? Well, what what surprised me, what I didn't think about so you know Gary Vaynerchuk he's some people think of him as a social media phenomenon but he's building a you know a media company for the new world that we live in right so the you know his Twitter and Snapchat and other social platforms that he has is kind of the calling card but his real business is VaynerMedia where he's acting as a you know an advertising and marketing agency for big corporations to do their social marketing, right? So he, you know, Pepsi, big Fortune 500 companies are General using General Electric, Vayner. yeah. General Electric, yeah, thank you. Like huge, huge companies are using him to, to figure out how do I market in this new world of social media? And he said something to me about, you know, he wants to build the biggest building, right? You know, he, he wants to build VaynerMedia and all its incarnations into a huge company. And I think, again, when most people see him, he's very you know, he's bombastic and he says controversial things and he's very flamboyant and in your face, but it's, it's a little bit, so he looks like a hare, but he's really a tortoise, I guess is what I'm saying. Like he is really thinking about building a business for the very long term, even though what you see presented before you is very much about like the here and now it's a flash in the pan, social media phenomenon kind of thing. Yeah. One of the best, uh, weapons, I guess, in, in business is to be underestimated. 
I've, I've Absolutely. learned yes. that from him. And, and I think he definitely is. Yeah, for sure. That's a great point. All right. Let's talk about you. Let's get personal. Yeah. Tell what me, about me? Tell me. Well, <laughs> so the show's called So Money. Yeah. And the hope is that with our guests, we learn about their financial perspectives. Personally, your dad of four. Congratulations. I thought that Thank was the you. greatest aspect of your bio. It is most, it is my most important job for is, sure. Yeah. And husband. And husband your wife, and Allison, has been on the show. Allison Task. Um, it was a very successful episode. If you didn't catch that, uh, go through the archives at so many podcasts and listen to that. So, um, it'll give you Aaron some context as well, listening to Allison's interview. Tell us a little yeah, bit about so your. So now I'm, com- now I'm competitive. Now I want to make sure this, uh, this episode <laughs> You want to do better, better than, than her episode. Well, <laughs> all right. Let's get to Is that get- wrong? Should I not be thinking that way? Here's what you do you just put this on the cover of fortune.com, this episode. Oh, boom. There you go. Got it. Done. All right. Great. I'll look forward to that. What's your money mantra? What's your personal financial philosophy? Well, my personal philosophy is the oxen are slow, but the earth is patient. It is a a Chinese proverb that I learned a long time ago, which I think applies particularly to my career, because especially in media, there are a lot of people who make it really big at a very young age. And there was a point in my career where I found myself being envious of people who are getting opportunities, and I thought I was as good as them or better than them. And I realized that it is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. And I just like the oxen are slow, but the earth is patient better than it's a marathon and not a marathon and not a sprint. I just think it sounds a little more poetic. Um, the idea is that, you know, you, you have to go on your own pace at your own timetable. And, you know, hopefully you, you're, the work that you're doing is quality and that that will be recognized and you will be rewarded accordingly. So then along those same lines, do you think that you believe in the saying that everything is meant to be? I'm not sure that I believe that everything is meant to be, but I do think that things come in when in, the, in their time, right? There's, a, there's the right time for everybody in their career, and you have to be able to take those opportunities and seize them and capitalize on them. Um, but I, I guess I, that phrase to me is a little bit too much that it's all up to fate. Um, mm-hmm. I just think it's more about... Creating you know, your own fate in some Creating ways. your own fate and, and keeping a perspective about it. Again, especially in the media world where, you know, if you're not on the Today Show or in our world, CNBC or other platforms, you can feel like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not making it. But there, there's no one way to be successful. And you have to do things that work for you in the context of your, your life and your career goals. Right. And your strengths. Because you could get on those platforms and then realize it's not for you. And, uh, you know, at least you tried. Absolutely. Absolutely. What about growing up as a young, you were raised in Jersey, right? So that's right. What was your first experience with money? Like a good money memory that to this day, even as a father, as a husband, as a, as a man, like you really, you remember that story, you feel like it was a, um, you know, a, a building block. Right. Well, there are, uh, yeah, a couple come to mind. First of all, my father uh, was very influential for me in terms of how I think about money. He was born during the depression. Um, his father was a, a, a day laborer and a painter. So he did not come from means and, you know, at a very young age, they struggled uh, as a lot of people did in this country in that, in that time. Um, and again, it wasn't like they had money going into the depression. So he was very frugal 
right? Maybe to a fault, I would say. But I do remember him. He would always come home from work and empty his pockets and take the loose change and put them in a big jar that he kept on his dresser. And I don't know how old I was. One day I asked him, like, why do you do that? And he said, at the end of the year, there's going to be a lot more money in this jar than you think. And I will use that money to treat myself to something special. He told me that earlier in his life that that was enough money to buy season tickets for the Washington Redskins when he lived in the DC area, when I guess football tickets were a lot less expensive than they are today. But I still do that every day when I come home, I have jars and I put money in them, you know, loose change, whatever I've collected during the day. Um, Cause I still like to use real money sometimes as opposed to credit or PayPal or Venmo or whatever electronic form of payment you have. Um, and I know that, some at some point I'm going to want to treat myself or my wife to something, and there's a couple hundred dollars sitting in at least loose change in my house right now. I do the same thing. That's great. Yeah, and, and it's like, just fun to go and figure out how much it is. Too. Right. I feel like a kid. I go. I, I am the only adult in line. Uh, there are children literally standing in line <laughs> yeah. in front of me with their jars, but I don't care. Um, cause you're right. There's like, there's, there's the fun in, in discovering how much is there. And then there's the fun in deciding what to do with it. Um, it's like a kid in a candy store. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think most people, when you do, you'll be amazed at how much money you can collect over the year, just in loose change. Um, and, and to your point about there being kids online, when you go to cash it in, it's a great lesson to teach kids about money from an early age. And it's, it's a proverbial piggy bank. Um, but it, it, again, when you add it all up at the end of the year or whatever period of time you think about it, it turns out to be a lot more than you think. Are so there, there's that story. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. So oh, there's another one. Tell me. Yeah, the other one from childhood that I remembered is when I was a kid and I went to elementary school in the late 70s and early 80s, there was a passbook savings program where you would bring money to school and hand it into your teacher. And I guess the school would collect it all and send it to the bank. And then you would get a, you know, your notebook would get your passbook, excuse me, notebook would get, you know, stamped with how much money you had. And again, I remember doing that all through grade school. And at the end of grade school, I had like $600, you know, saved up. And it was, again, it was like a dollar or two every week that you would bring in. And for some reason, I remember it was every Tuesday that we would bring in that money. Go Jersey public school. Yeah. That's a great, and I and doubt they, they had those programs anywhere, no. but it was a great lesson in savings yeah. and, and in those days, you could get interest on a savings account and a compounding interest, although we never talked about that for sure. And did you get competitive with friends? Like, how much did you save, you know, and kind of trying to finish the year with the most money? You know what? I, funny, I don't remember. I remember being competitive with friends about baseball cards and sports, but not about that. Hmm. But still, really great. I wish school – we got rid of home ec. I mean, there's yeah, no, there's no exactly. hope for learning at this point about money in school. We need to re- – yeah, this is, this is something actually that Gary Vee, bringing back to him, talked about, that he wants to develop a uh, grade school program for young people who have the entrepreneurial spirit because the way schools are set up, like they don't teach those things. And, and he felt that he was – he didn't do well in school because he, he just didn't have a head for books. He had a head for, for business. And I have other friends – who had similar experiences. I know two, two friends in particular who weren't particularly good students. And so in high school, you would have thought, well, you know, are they going to amount to much? And both of them have a lot more money than I do right now <laughs> because they were very entrepreneurial mm-hmm. and they went out and they just, when they got into the business world, that was their sweet spot. And our education system just isn't set up right now for those people. And we all need to learn at least the basics of money 
skills, the home economic skills, which should be taught absolutely in schools. Totally. I mean, entrepreneurship is, is I see that I see that more and more in colleges and some high schools. Um, I think just because the, it's, the kids want to learn. They're seeing uh, entrepreneurship is the new rock star, you know, or, or the new yeah. rock concert. So yeah, kids are really these, into it. Yeah. These kids today who, um, who saw what happened after the financial crash, right. either to their older siblings or to their parents realized like, Oh, I can't put my faith that I can have a safe quote unquote job at a corporation. I got to go out and make it for myself. So if one of your children said, I don't want to go to college, I want to start a business. How supportive will you be? I would be very supportive of that. Mm-hmm. Cause you can always go to college. And especially if someone, if one of my kids says, I don't want to go to college. I just want to go sit on the beach somewhere. That's a different conversation. <laughs> right. But if they say, I don't want to go to college. I want to start my own business. Absolutely. I, I know Alice and my wife would be supportive of that too. Cause she's very entrepreneurial and college isn't for everybody. And it's so expensive that if it's not the right place for you, then you definitely shouldn't go. Right. I wonder what's going to happen to the 529. I'm getting a lot of questions actually from re- from listeners saying, I have a young child. I want to save for college in the event that my child goes. But if he or she doesn't, I don't want to be locked into a 529. So it's uh, it's kind of losing its luster for parents that are open-minded to this. Yeah. I believe though there are other things you can spend sure. that money on. Um, and I don't know enough all the details, but there are and culinary you can also, school. <laughs> yeah, yeah, culinary school, technical school. Um, you can also transfer it to a sibling. So there, I, I think it's still a great savings vehicle. And given what the cost of college is, I think I would advise people to put something into a five twenty nine now, just because of the tax advantages. Of right, it. right. You don't get that necessarily with just a plain vanilla savings account. Exactly. Uh, biggest money failure. And then we'll talk about a success and then I'll let you go. But I got to know your failure before I know your success. Yeah, my, my biggest money failure has to be uh, buying a house in northern New Jersey in what year was it? 2004 when I was saying it's a bubble. It's crazy. I can't believe the prices that people are paying for these houses and there's bidding wars. And I got caught up in it because I told myself, you know, well, I'm in the right time in my life. Um, and I have steady income and it's even though, you know, I did it holding my nose, but I still did it. And it was a huge mistake and sold that house at a loss, um, several years later. Ouch. That one, that hurt. Yeah. But it didn't make you, it it didn't make you turn off completely from buying. You just, you know, you still believe in the power of real estate or you feel I, I do because Conversely, the best financial decision I ever made was buying an apartment in Hoboken in the late 1990s Mm. before Hoboken took off. And, you know, at the time it was so much money and I couldn't believe I was spending it. And, but I did it because I had saved money and I had enough money for the down payment and I knew I could make the mortgage. And I, and I thought it would be a good investment. It has turned out to be a wonderful investment just because of what's happened with both the town of Hoboken, which has boomed since then, and real estate in general. And I still have it now as a rental property. Uh, my wife and I talk about it. Maybe maybe we'll use it as a retirement place we could retire to Yeah. You know, as empty nesters. It's not fancy, but it's sufficient and easy access to the city. And Hoboken, we wouldn't need a car, those kind of considerations. Or... We could sell it and use that money for other things to do with our family, you know, buying a vacation house or if we decide we want to, 
you know, we find the house of our dreams and we want to upgrade. We, we have that, that asset and equity sitting in it right now. Well, I think that also speaks to buying and holding. Yeah. You know, I mean, what? the market probably had dipped along the way and had you decided to sell at a certain point, maybe it wouldn't have been so lucrative, but now it's really paid off because time has, has healed. Absolutely. And, and this is, you know, the great, you know, Warren Buffett, who's probably the best investor of our lifetime for sure, you know, always talks about it. It's, it's not what you buy. It's the price you buy it at that matters. And the price I bought the Hoboken apartment at was great. Whereas the price I bought the house in New Jersey was terrible, right? So it, it's not about, do I, do I believe in real estate or not? It was just that, you know, you have to get the timing right. right. And you have the, the price you pay, the price you pay for something and the price you sell it at are really the only two things that matter at the end of the day. So how long can you hold on to an asset that's not doing well? I mean, these are all things people talk about a lot when it comes to stocks, but it, it counts for other stuff too, definitely for real estate. Right. So most importantly, make sure you can make those payments in good times yeah. and bad and then just, you know, ride through the waves and, um, you know, you'll come out on the other end, hopefully with some cash in your pocket. Yeah, absolutely. And look, uh, you know, I'm sitting here telling you what a great investment this farm in Hoboken is. You know, the, the market could crash tomorrow right. and I'm going to be kicking myself that I had, you know, all that money and equity that I left on the table. But I, you know, I still have faith in long term that that is going to be a good asset. So that's why I'm holding on to it, at least for the moment, the plan is to hold on to it as long as I can rent it out and that covers my expenses on it. And they're not moving Manhattan anytime soon. And it's still <laughs> a desirable place to be, et cetera, et cetera. Unless you get swept up by a tsunami. It is on the high ground. It's on the high part of <laughs> Hoboken. If you know Hoboken, it's not far from Stevens Tech, which is the highest point in, in Hoboken. But yes, but if, if New York City and Hoboken get swept away by a tsunami, much bigger problems we have to worry about. Everybody then. can come to Brooklyn, I guess. Yeah, well, yeah uh, Brooklyn will be fine, I'm sure. Um, yeah, I'm sure Brooklyn will be fine if I, that happens. I'm not near the edge in Brooklyn, so that's good. <laughs> um, Aaron Task, thank you so much. And just because it's doing so well and it's it's relatively new on your to-do list, I want to promote, again, Fortune Unfiltered with Aaron Task available, like you said, uh, where all podcasts air. Congratulations on that. Looking forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you so much, Farnish. I appreciate you having me on. And you are so money. <laughs> That's the first time a guest has ever told me that. How about that? See, I knew you were so money the first time I met you. Aw. Well, thanks. Sometimes a girl needs to hear that. Absolutely. And a guy, too. Thank you. That's a wrap. Thank you so much, Aaron Task. His website, fortune.com. And, of course, on Twitter at Aaron Task, one word. The podcast is Fortune Unfiltered. Make sure you subscribe. If you missed any of this, head over to somoneypodcast.com where you can download the interview, the transcript, leave a comment. And if you have a question for me, just click on Ask Farnoosh. And that's uh, the best way for you to send me your biggest, baddest question. I'll send it over to the Friday episode and hopefully we'll get it answered and resolved ASAP. Thanks for tuning in and I hope your day is so money. <laughs>